Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. So as we put the literal horror show of 2020 behind us, I felt it was really important to kick off this new year with an episode about somebody that we lost last year who left a tremendous void in the horror community. And that, of course, is Stuart Gordon. To call Stuart a boundary pusher would be such an understatement. Stuart taught entire generations of horror directors how to not just push boundaries, but decimate them. And by doing so, show audiences the true power of horror. Stuart meant a lot of things to a lot of people. And one of the most recurring themes of conversations I've had with people about him is just how dedicated he was to mentorship and the craft of art. I was fortunate enough to have conducted one of the last interviews with Stuart last year, and I highly recommend hearing that conversation if you haven't already. My conversation with Stuart was right after he had written his autobiography, so he was very reflective of his entire life story and was incredibly generous with his wisdom. So check out that episode if you have not already. It's great. And I was pinching myself the entire time because it was such a privilege to speak to him. For this episode, I wanted to dig deeper into Stuart's prolific life by talking to some of those who were lucky enough to work with him. This episode features three separate conversations about Stuart with Brian Usna, Larry Fessenden, and Graham Skipper. Each person reflects on Stuart's life, his legacy, and what they learned from him. And I was really floored at how much insight came out of each of these conversations. Each interview turned out to be extremely practical, very revealing, and really, really fun. There's a lot of great stories about Stuart, as well as really practical filmmaking lessons as well. So you guys are in for a treat. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoyed these three conversations about the life and work of one of our fallen masters of horror, Stuart Gordon. I'm going to start with perhaps Stuart's closest collaborator, Brian Usna. Brian is a man who needs no introduction. A writer, director, and producer, Brian produced multiple movies that Stuart directed, including Reanimator, Dagon, From Beyond, and Dolls. Brian directed one of my personal favorite deep cuts, Society, which if you have not seen, do yourself a favor and watch it, ideally with Joe Bob on Shudder. Brian also directed Bride of Reanimator, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Beyond Reanimator, Return of the Living Dead 3, which is fucking insane and fantastic, and not enough people talk about it. Brian and Stewart had a famous collaboration, and in partnership with each other, were responsible for some very quintessential horror classics. As a duo, they were so unstoppable, and I was so fortunate to be able to speak with Brian in depth about their collaboration. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation about Stuart Gordon with Brian Usna. <laughs> So as a director, what were some of the big lessons that you learned from Stuart as a director and as a leader? Um, I think I learned, I mean, to a certain degree, I kind of learned how to direct by watching the directors that I produce. I, um, I think I've produced, I don't know, 10 first-time directors and a lot more that weren't first time. And um, I think from all of them, I picked up something, but Stuart was certainly the, the, the one who was the most, I think the most influential, not that my, not that I ended up directing like him. I mean, I think I just, I think maybe what I got from him was just, I tried to kind of osmose 
his ability to tell stories with actors. Mm. And that's something, I mean, I've always thought that's the, that was Stewart's great gift. And, uh, and it, it's, yeah, I mean, it's quite logical because Stewart, you know, had directed theater for 10 years before he ever did his first movie. Right. So when we started Reanimator, we were both first timers. Everybody else on the set had worked before in the movie business. We were in Hollywood. And, um, but the difference was that Stewart had been directing actors and telling stories on stage for years before that. So he was, he's a very, um, very um, talented and accomplished director of actors and teller of stories. Um, he brought that to the movies. And I think, I, I hope I was able to learn something from it. I don't think you really learn anything without doing. Mm. Yeah. But, it, uh, but, and I've never directed theater, so it's a whole different type of mentality. I've always been, I've always loved movies that have like lots of tricks and visual effects. And Stewart always wanted to do it like you do it on stage. Mm. So, for example, with Reanimator, of course, we couldn't afford anything. Um, I was very much about the effects. And Stewart was determined and his go-to um, tool was stage effects. We didn't have a choice. I think Reanimator has two, what we used to call visual effects, opticals, in the whole movie. There's a laser beam mm-hmm. <laughs> that Hill's using when you first see him. Believe right. it or not, it was a big deal to get that effect. And there was at the end when the syringe empties out. Right. Well, of course, I was drove for those things. I would have, when... You're, when Dr. Hill's head is being held in front of him, if I could have, I would have done it with blue screen. Back then, you had to do blue screen and process photography. Very right. complicated. Today, it's nothing. But um, back then, it was a big deal. And Stuart, he he didn't even want to do that. It didn't have matter to do with the budget. And at a certain degree, I've always felt like it's not just Stuart, a lot of... A lot of um, Horror, you know, kind of independent horror directors, genre directors, um, and Stewart certainly to a, to a high degree, um, almost work better with the limit with limitations. Mm, yeah, better because that's when they have there's maybe fewer tools, but you see a mastery of those tools. You know, it's kind of like the difference between a string quartet and a rock group or something. Mm. You know, and I mean, not a string quartet, like a full-blown orchestra. Yeah. And an orchestra, man, you've got to get every part fit, fitting in with every other part. But if you're doing jazz or doing rock, or it's a few people who are jamming, and they can really. And I think sometimes I feel like the horror movies work best with that kind of that kind of dynamic. As a matter of fact, that I once um, I once had a dinner with um, with um, God, what's his name, the the singer 
who played Renfield in the Coppola version of Dracula. Oh, Tom Waits. Okay, Tom Waits. And he was saying, what is this with horror movies and stuff, right? And I, you know, I tried to explain it to him. He says, oh, I get it. Horror movies, horror is the rock and roll of movies. Hmm. Uh, huh. You know, that's, there's, a, there's a lot of truth in that. A lot of truth. And I think that's one reason why the big, you know, the more produced horror, the more big stuff, it has a harder time working. You know? Yeah. Which isn't to say that The Exorcist isn't incredible. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. not like, I'm not saying it's a hard and fast rule. I just have noticed that so many directors like Stewart, who are, who I, I mean, I always felt like Stewart had the talent. And, and, and that he should have been doing huge movies. Yeah. Because I see big, big time directors and I kind of don't see as much ability and talent as, as Stewart had. Yeah. You know? And there's a resourcefulness it, sometimes when you see certain directors working with such low budgets and they're able to put something together that's palpably frightening and compelling. It's being able to use those lower budgets just forces them to be creative to a certain degree. I mean, even Rob Zombie says he prefers the lower budgets because it forces you to be more creative versus all that money spoils you as a director and makes you waste. Rob Zombie's a good example of a rock and roll director. Oh, yeah. Perfect example. And I, I've seen it in so many, in so many, I mean, very, very few genre directors, independent horror guys, women too really make that leap. You know, somebody like um, Sam Raimi mm-hmm. is kind of an, is a, you know, an exception to the rule. I guess maybe Wes Craven was right. able to. Uh, John Carpenter kind of did, but ultimately you kind of go, boy, I like the old John Carpenter. <laughs> you, know, you get up into that big area and the big, all of a sudden everything is so, you know, kind of planned and, and and goes through so many voices and so many, you know, there's so much at stake. Mm. And the kind of, you know, I like to listen to, you know, jazz that has improv riffs in it. Yeah. You know, I like rock and roll when they have a big solo, you know. Right. I like stuff. And that's kind of what I like about horror when it's when it works, you mm-hmm. know. But I think Stewart definitely had that because I think all of his best stuff was the stuff that had the most, the most restraints mm. and he could be the guy. And Stuart was, you know, you, he was a collaborator, but you know, he was a, you know, there was, um, especially the, the, of course, the older we get, older we get, the more like ourselves we become, <laughs> but more and more, he was the, the guy, you know, yeah. I, I, I saw a remembrance or a, a comment that his brother made um, after his passing. And he said he remembers when Stuart got a report card when he was like in grammar school and the teacher put, he's very good at directing the other kids on the playground. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you a lot. Well, I guess this was, this was kind of in the cards. Yeah. You know? But he was very obsessive. He was certainly um, great to collaborate with. I mean, he was always just the best at coming up with a story. Mm. You know? 
Yeah, what was your collaboration process like? Because you both were thick as thieves when you were working together. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we, there was a, a number of stages of working. I mean, we did, you'd say that reanimator dolls from beyond is kind of, is one sort of thing. Well, reanimator would stand apart. On dolls and from beyond, I didn't finance that. Mm-hmm. So another element there. But we were still dealing with, well, with, and from beyond, it was Dennis, and we all came up with the story. We all wrote the story. Dennis wrote the script. And it was always, well, the way Stuart used to put it, he said that he and I brought out the worst in each other. <laughs> yeah, he, he told me that when I spoke to him. And Dennis told me recently, said, you know, the funny thing was, is that Stuart and I, we'd worked because Stuart was Dennis's oldest friend. And he said, you know, and they went to college together and did the theater thing together, whole thing. And um, we did so many projects. We did so many things. He said, we could have done anything, but Mm. you wanted to do horror. So we did horror. (laughs) And that's, I mean, I never thought of it that way because when I first met Stuart, I was, I had put an ad in, in weekly variety, a little ad that I paid for that said, Horror director wanted. <laughs> you can imagine how well, that was back before fax machines. Wow. How many letters I got. Oh, wow. You know? And so it was like I was I was going to make a horror movie because I, I like I was I was a horror guy. I was a horror fan. And um, if I'm going to risk all the money that I had in the world and go into debt, it was going to be a horror. And but when I met Stewart. He was like a, and I'd met a lot of different possible directors, but I met him, I saw his plays, and, and we immediately got along. You know, we, we immediately, um, I seemed to have, we're riffing on stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, when, and when we developed the reanimator script into a movie script, there was never any, it was me and him and Dennis. I never really dealt with um, with William Norris, um, who had, according to Stewart, I think, and Dennis, had kind of created the West character. Mm-hmm. It was the one, they kind of credit him with coming up with that that kind of irony, that kind of edge that, that West has that we love. You know, I mean, I just never remember their, it's on Reanimator, I never, we just threw a lot of ideas around when, uh, you know, the original script there, it kind of was a TV pilot and um, it only went as far as um, Halsey getting killed and Dr. Hill wasn't in it. Oh, that's and right. Then, it was originally going to be a uh, TV. It was originally reanimated. was originally a TV pilot. Yeah. And, um, and then when I read, I had never read the stories. So then I read the stories and I said, no, no, we got to have the guy with the head. Carrying the same around because I always I always loved movies where the heads would talk and stuff. You know, the wouldn't die and yeah. and the house on haunted hill. Whenever somebody was carrying a head around, and every time, what was the one with the head sitting on the table? But you know, I I just that to me always was like, whoa, that's horror. Well, you guys brought that to a whole new level. Yeah, and and I think, but that was never a. It was never like, I don't ever remember any kind of arguments or anything. 
between you, you know, and Stuart? Or me and Stuart and Dennis. It was, I mean, we were all working together for the, you know, they were, I mean, they were writing the script and I was giving notes and giving my ideas and say, but I never remember there being some kind of like a, of a like, well, I don't want to do it that way. Mm. You know, I never, it never, I don't ever remember that even coming up. I just remember that every, that we were just kind of, I always just thought of it like the three witches in Macbeth, you know, <laughs> we were just kind of bubble, bubble, toil and trouble and trying to kind of come up with something. And it all just seemed wonderful, you know, Yeah. and I'm very determined to have, you know, really cool effects. Uh, Bob Greenberg, who had, who had introduced me to Stuart, knew Tony Dublin, who was, um, so I, so he brought Tony over about the effects. Tony brought in his friend, John Nolan. And then I knew John Beekler through Charlie Band, who I had been trying to make a movie with Charlie, but it never was going anywhere. And, um, and so we brought in Beekler to do kind of the more, you know, the, the, the kind of hero like corpses. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bullet to the head corpse or something. The the ones that were because John Beekler had a lot of lot of experience, but Tony Dublin just knew all that. He's always been great at the mechanics of everything, and so I think we ended up having the three. Of, we did have the three of them, and um, what a dream and, team! Yeah, and we also had to. Um, you know, I know, like we ended up reshooting a lot of shots for the ending of Reanimator after we cut it mm-hmm. because the effects weren't working, you know, so we had to redo the, the guts shooting out and, and, uh, and we also shot the opening then. And there was, I mean, there were a few things that Stuart and I went back and forth about. So for example, um, he didn't think we needed the prologue. Hmm. When we first shot, we only had 16 days. I mean, I didn't have much money, you know, and it was down to the pennies, you know. Well, then when when it was cut together, it just we needed to get these effect shots done. And a few things I thought were were very important, and Stuart didn't, and vice versa. But I and so for example. After I saw it put together, I felt like, one, I felt like we had to tighten it way up. I think the first cut was like over two hours long. Wow. Two and a half hours or something. A lot of people would love to see that. Well, it's out there. It's out there. It's called the integral version. Oh, (laughs) all right. I have to track that down. It's actually a fan cut. Okay. In Germany, they took all the cut scenes and put them together. So it's, nice. You know, the TV version was longer than the theatrical version mm-hmm. because the TV version was had a bunch of talking scenes in it, and they cut out a lot of the good stuff. Right. And the version that we released, which was eighty-six minutes, there was a we certainly had a lot of discussion about that because, on the one hand, Stewart thought it was cut too fast. Mm. After it was released, then he said, hey, man, that was right. <laughs> and I thought the cat was terrible. The cat? Had, 
yeah, because it wasn't what I expected, you know. And so I actually got John Beekler to do another version of it. We oh. shot it. And it didn't work. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I thought you the know? cat turned out pretty great myself, but that's just well, me. I, I agree with you. I'm just saying that you never know. Yeah, you, you, know, can, you, you never can tell. Making a movie, a lot of what happens is that you're imagining something. And when it doesn't turn out that way, you think it's not working. Right. But if you didn't, if you weren't tied into what you, if you could get give it up, you could see that maybe it is working in a different way. Yeah, I feel like that's a big director lesson. If it doesn't work out exactly the way you see it in your mind, it doesn't mean what you have isn't great or doesn't have the opportunity to be great. And that's one reason why when I, I mean, when I direct, I never want to cut it myself. I would never want to edit a movie myself. A lot of people do. Mm. They want to shoot they want to edit it, they want to direct it. And I always want an editor to look at the material and tell me what he thinks is working. Right. Or she. Because I'm too close to it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's also good to have an executive producer, have people who are further distances from the project that aren't tied in with how long it took to shoot that or, right. or how much fun that was. or You know what I mean? Yeah, more look- objective voices like that oh that's great no no it's awful it's it's great man you know that's that's the the dynamic and i think that i think that that's a i I think that's a good dynamic and one of the things i learned from stewart from the first time i saw him when i went to a play that he had put on afterwards he took questions from the audience about whether they thought it worked or not he was developing it and the audience, this was in Chicago, they were used to going to his, he ran a theater called The Organic. Mm-hmm. And they, they were very honest. I mean, to, to a degree that, that sometimes they would criticize stuff. Wow. And Stewart never was defensive. He never, he never I would have gotten mad, or I would have been defensive. You know, I would have been, I would have been kind of, um, you know, casually offensive. Mm, <laughs> right. Um, because I would have been hurt. But Stuart would just kind of go, mm, you, know, you know, but of course he wouldn't do anything that he didn't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> but he would listen to the feedback regardless. No, but he listened to it and he interpreted however. He interpreted it in his own way. Mm-hmm. It's not like he went and and um, was having a committee kind of decide whether it was working. Or right. I, but I remember reading a book about the, the um, Marx Brothers movies. And the Marx Brothers, you know, they first put their stuff out on, on plays. They were like wacky, crazy comedies on, sta- on stage. Then they tried to bring that feeling to the to the movies, and when they did the they would first do them as a play, and when they do the play, they would start. Of course, they would go outside of New York somewhere, and they would and they would do it, and then rewrite and do it the next night. Based on the crowd reaction, and then rewrite and do it the next time, and rewrite and do it the next, and that's kind of the way plays are done not as to the extreme that that a um, that a farce is mm-hmm. but you know plays they take it outside 
they go to Connecticut or something and they try it and see if it's working. Yeah. For some reason in the movies, we've developed this idea that the director is, is a genius, an artist, a, a, you know, he's like a novelist. And even novelists have editors, by the way. So, and even the great, the big singer-songwriters, they actually use other people's songs, mm-hmm. but they check enough to put, you know. It all started with, you know, Bob Dylan being a singer-songwriter. Before that, you could be a songwriter or a singer. And, of course, the, the kind of author theory of movies started making it seem like if a director didn't write his own he wasn't an artist. Right. And the, the fact that you directed a movie, somehow you're an artist. You're somebody's really, really special. It's like it's not a craft. It's like some genius that comes down. And I think that hurts a lot of movies. I think totally. it hurts because, because you have this pretentiousness that you get from people who don't even haven't even mastered the job. Right, right. Whereas if you have the right collaborators around you, like the right writer, the right executive producer, the right collaborator, they will give you objective feedback and you craft the movie together with people who fill in for your blind spots, so to speak. Because it's easy to have blind spots with your own movie, particularly if, since you're so close to it. You know, it's hard to be objective about something that you care that much and, about. And I think Stuart kind of, uh, I certainly took that from him because I started realizing as hard as it is to do, you just have to show what you're doing to other people and get their feedback. Yeah, it's so important. Plus, it's tricky because because if someone's not is not um, doesn't have any stake in the movie, a lot of times their opinion doesn't matter much. Mm-hmm. And most of your friends that you're showing it to are filmmakers themselves, so they're seeing how you should have made their movie. Mm, that's interesting. And so having to, having to, it's just like you, if you put out a podcast and then you ask your friends, how do you think the podcast went? Well, you know, you could have done, you know, you go, yeah. no, that's your podcast. Right. What do you so wh- who are you really listening to and how do you let that influence you? That's the trick. Mm-hmm. Not listening is, is a big mistake. Listening and thinking that somehow there's other opinions that are going to solve your problem, that's a big mistake. You know? Yeah, it and sounds I, like it's a fine balance. Well, Stuart had a very strong sense of what he wanted, and he had the chops to do it. I've seen him do stuff that had nothing to do with horror or anything. He can just tell a story. just. He was just really good. Wow. And whenever we met, I mean, whenever we would come up with projects, it was, I'd work with a lot, a lot, a lot of people on many, many projects, most of which never got made. But you still work on them just mm-hmm. as, as intensely. And there was never anybody who was that liberating when it came to storytelling because Stuart always had that down. He always had a, a story concept, you know? Yeah. And that's really hard. And I think it only can come, it's got to be just because he was a theater guy. Yeah. Yeah, his theater background seems like it, it gave him so much knowledge and so much great instinct. 
that's the key. I worked with another really, um, well, he's certainly a successful and very um, super interesting director, Christophe Gans, who's a French director. Mm-hmm. He directed an, an episode of the Necronomicon for me, and then I produced Crime Freeman, which was his first thing. And then he did um, Brotherhood of the Wolf and and probably the one that your listeners will know, which is the um, the um, what's it, Silent Hill. Right? Okay. And he's a big, I mean, he does $80 million movies, Euro movies in France. It's a big, big guy. And he was like the opposite of Stuart. In a way, he was very, he, everything was, he was a critic. He started as a critic in France, like a lot of French directors. Had a TV show about genre movies. And he had so many references for movies. So every shot he did, was a reference to a movie. Mm. Everything was, but what was, and it was, would be incredible, but what was really tricky was getting it to all kind of add up to a clear and satisfying story. Quentin Tarantino does that pretty well. Well, Tarantino is very, well, Tarantino is really great at being entertaining. Oh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not so sure. I'm convinced that everything is a proper story, <laughs> but certainly super. I mean, he every scene of his movies just entertained. Oh yeah. Whereas, whereas with Stewart, with Kristoff, it was always really hard to get that story to work. Mm-hmm. So there's so much going on, but. And it was all so cinematic. But with Stewart, he wasn't that, it didn't really, he wasn't driven by fantastic shots or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was driven by the actors and the, and the interplay between them. And if you look at his, his best stuff, it's just five actors probably, <laughs> a handful of sets. And good photography, but nothing um, so special. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's and I think most people go into directing um, and you want to do that really cool shot. You know, Stuart's idea, I think when we were when we were preparing Reanimator, we he used to come over and we would I had a projection TV and we had laser discs. And we would watch horror movies. So we just, you know, we spent a lot of nights just watching horror movies. And the one that we watched more than once, a few times, was Rosemary's Baby. And that, you can see, that, he thought, that's the kind of style that could work. Mm. And with Rosemary's Baby, it's all kind of on the shoulder. It's all following Rosemary around. Almost every shot in the movie has Rosemary. Right. So it's very much, and when you're, over someone's shoulder, it's like it's their POV. But it's not a POV like looking on Skype. Mm-hmm. A POV that includes your present, the presence of the character. Right. Which that you're kind of identifying with. If it's a clean, if it's a clean POV, it almost is jarring and can seem a bit because mm-hmm. it's not human. 
Well, life isn't quite like that. I mean, we always have a sense of our presence when we're seeing. Mm-hmm. It can be our glasses or, or some sort of sense you see part of your body. But, but in a movie, you kind of need to know where you are, you know, and you kind of have to, you know, and being over the shoulder, there's also an idea with over the shoulder and following people around that somehow, hey, life doesn't have edits. So, but life does have edits. We blink our eyes. Right. And often our we're actually editing to the next bit, you know. So, and you choose which bits you want to put into your memory, to your narrative. Right. But, but if you'll notice with, um, I mean, it got to be, Stuart kind of dropped that a little as, as years went by, but certainly on Reanimator, Dolls, and From Beyond, it's very much, there was, it was always put it on the shoulder, go over, you know, go over their shoulder. And Mac Alberg kind of um, tempered that. So Mac Albert was the DP, and he was sort of almost a, he was kind of almost a father figure for Stewart. Oh, wow. He, he was of another generation. He's Swedish. And he was able to um, just very quietly kind of convince Stewart of doing, like there used, we used to have a lot, like on Reanimator, you're always worried about the coverage. When you're first starting movies, the big danger is you won't have enough shots to cut together for the scene. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard, you have to in, you incorporate that. It, somehow it, after years, it becomes just part of the way you think of movies and stuff. But when you start, it's really a new kind of idea, crossing the line. Do, you know, all these things are, are um, you know, they're, it's movie language by two-dimensional recording but you, you know, after you do it a lot and you get into problems, you start, you kind of incorporate it into your thinking. Well, Mac had done, he had worked with Birdman, you know. He, had, he was so um, experienced that when, when, um, when he came on the set, Stuart, you know, when we might need a, a cutaway, a close-up, and Stuart only wants to do the over-the-shoulder. Because <laughs> of Rosemary's Baby. Well, I know. I think it's because he got the idea. I think it's because I think he had learned on plays that the way you have a voice in a, in a play. I'm just inventing this, but the way you have a voice, the way you have a point of view, is by taking an idea and sticking with it. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you look at Dagon, which I think is a great Lovecraft adaptation, it's the last movie I produced that Stuart directed. The one the one thing that he said from the beginning, he said, it's always going to be raining. Okay, that's like over the shoulder (laughs) in that movie. It's pretty much. And that was a bitch to shoot because it was winter. Oh man! On the on the on the western coast of Spain, so it's really cold when you have rain towers, and everybody's wet. The crew is wearing it's freezing cold. <laughs> but when you look at that, another director, me for example, 
<laughs> having more of a producer mind anyway, I'd probably be going, well, we can't put everybody through all this. <laughs> we'll find a way to deal with it, you know. But Stuart just decided it's always going to be wet, it's always going to be raining, and it was always raining. And it was miserable. Mm. It was really, really miserable. But you know what? When you watch that movie, there's a continuity to it because of that. Yeah. That makes you, that is like a style. It's like a voice to the movie. And I think that's the way maybe something like an over the shoulder. Or it's like maybe when Bernard Herrmann said, Psycho will only have strings. The whole score. Only strings. Yeah. That's an extreme. Why would you do that? Right? Because those types of decisions can can make a movie or a score have a point of view. Yeah. You know? It's not a bad thing. What the problem would come up is that sometimes those POV, that over the shoulder, um, if you're not experienced, you'll be surprised when all of a sudden in the editing room, that scene is really dragging and you got nowhere to go. Hmm. You know, of course, today you can do a jump cut or anything, but I mean, today you can do anything. But if you think about, you know, then you're, you're kind of like, gee, where do we go to? You know, cause that's an early problem you have when you're directing or just making movies. And um, it also is exacerbated by the fact that when you see something on set that you're watching yourself being performed, it always goes faster than it does when it's in the editing on screen. It goes because more, I don't know, it's maybe it's because it's 3D. Maybe for some reason you're, there's a, you're involved with it. Mm. it. It's different than what it is. Like a lot of times on, on a set, there'll be a take where the crew will applaud, you know, some a performance or something. And then when you get into the editing room, the editor goes, well, that one doesn't work. <laughs> it's just, what's happening right there is different from necessarily what happens when you have put it into two dimensions. And it's maybe not, um, it's not working the way you thought. Well, Mac Alberg would just kind of very quietly to Stuart say, you know, I think you might want to want a close up of so and so on this. And from Mac he would take it. <laughs> Mac stood it up, you'd get your close up, and because Mac knew how things went, mm -hmm. and he from the very beginning really appreciated that Stuart was a real talent. Because Mac did a lot of independent horror movies, worked with Empire a lot. And so a lot of that stuff, it has a, it has its level, you know, right. as everything does. And it's and it's not like a huge movie where if you've got a big movie, not only do you have really high-end technicians, so at least the sets are going to be really great. The photography, you know, everything, you know, even if the movie doesn't work. Um, and the and the um, and if it doesn't work. They'll go back and reshoot it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, go reshoot it. Well, imagine that on an independent movie, independent horror movie. There's your budget. You just do, you just do what you've got. You don't reshoot it. Yeah, you know. 
And hey, we were lucky on Reanimator that I was able to pull together the money to re to do the insert, the, the shots of the ending that we needed and do the prologue, which I became convinced was really important. So you didn't have to wait 15 minutes to find out this was going to be a gory movie. Yeah. You know, I like when it, horror movies start off with something right shocking right off the bat. I don't like waiting for it. Obviously, there's exceptions like Jaws being another you know, big one. Although you don't wait that you wait a long time to see the shark. You don't wait long to see like oh, gore. With Jaws, they start with a B movie, a big B movie. Yeah, that's right. So, they do. This was, and that was really exploitative. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, that you're was right. Super exploitative. But I know what you're talking about on the low budget. Very often, well, today. Today, I'm always surprised at how much time horror movies take to mm -hmm. get going. Oh, yeah. Just, just as, because I, and, they, and it's done on purpose. It's not like, you know, I see it all the time when I work with people who are a lot younger than me and work on a script or something. I'm always surprised at how much patience they have for getting the story going. And it, I have to think that there's more there's an acceptance of that. And mm -hmm. I think the style that I, I kind of came up in, that I was a part of, was a style that was much more pulpy and, and kind of, um, kind of theme park ride. Yeah. It was much more funhouse kind of, movie making. And I missed that. I feel like there's not been a lot of that lately. Um, I think that, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's because people can't do it. I think they're, I sometimes think it's maybe two things. One, I mean, one thing is that I always think that um, it's very cheap to shoot now. What's that? It's a lot of footage, you know. You can, yeah. with the digital, you just run the camera all the time. But also, I think there, it certainly is working with the audiences because, um, you know, a lot of the popular horror movies are very slow to get going. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a different, maybe it's a different, maybe it's a, a kind of a, um, of a mainstreamization of horror. I don't know. It's just a different sensibility. Yeah. You know, it tends to, sometimes it works great, but for me, it tends to be, sometimes I just think it's pretentious. I just yeah. Think that kind of art house horror. I some when it's done right, it's great. But I I get impatient with certain movies. Yeah, but you know, I one movie I liked in the last ten years was the um, Cabin in the Woods. I know it's a send up. And so good. That was so much fun. You know, it's not. I get it that it's a it's a riff, totally referential. Yeah. The kind of like the horror movies of the last thirty years. Which is what was wonderful about it. It hit every single note for horror fans. It did. It was, but it, but it, but, and it delivered from the beginning. Oh yeah. It just kept delivering on, I mean, I, I know it's a send up, but it just kept delivering. And that shows me that of course people know how to do it. They totally do. They yeah. do know how to do it. You know, yeah. it's just not what they want to do now. There's this, I mean, even something like, um, what was that one? Crimson, the, something the Crimson Peak, the Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, yeah, huge money. Oh yeah, man, stuff. And I don't know when it got started. <laughs> <You know what laughs> I mean? 
Yeah, I felt the same way. You just, it's not that I need to have everything be in my face, but even a movie like, did you see the Spanish movie, The Orphanage? I did. You know, that's very slow. Yeah, it is. You know, but it starts from the beginning. It's delivering. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have this huge pace, but it's, or even, or how about a movie that's very slow, but it's totally in the, in the um, aesthetic of like the eighties kind of stuff, which is the autopsy of Jane Doe. That was a good one. I enjoyed that. There's a movie where the first 30 minutes, they're just standing around a table, an old guy and his son. Right. Who would, who would write a story about that? <laughs> I mean, it's like, boy, this is not your demographic here. <laughs> they're cutting open a corpse and talking while they're doing it. The opening, you know, the opening stinger is kind of really underdone. You're kind of, it's kind of like a, like a kind of a, a, a edited out, like law and order thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then all of a sudden you're down there and it is really slow, but for some reason it just works and on a completely pulpy level. Yeah. Absolutely pulp, not totally not pretentious in one bit. You don't see a director signing it all over the screen. You know? Mm-hmm. You don't see shots that are like, oh, look at this shot. It's just like, whoa, this is really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that Stewart, if with more story, mm. you know? that's an interesting way to put it. Great. Well, Brian, I can't thank you enough for your time. This was uh, this was really wonderful. Any parting words about Stewart or fun stories to share? I don't know. I always I always think about when we were shooting dolls. This is about how determined he is. He was a bull. He was he was like a bull, you know. You know when I when I picked him up at the airport when he came out to L.A. to do Reanimator. He uh, I think we were down in is it John Wayne Airport down in Orange County. I don't know why they, why it was there. I have no idea. But I went and picked him up, and Stewart showed up. I think Carolyn was with him. If I'm not mistaken. And he had this like leather jacket on and he was like, he was like this Chicago tough guy. <laughs> he was like, like a Chicago street guy. And that was a part of Stewart that I don't think anybody ever saw. But he really was a Chicago guy. And he really had this kind of idea of being tough and everything. <laughs> you, know, you always look at him and you say, no, Stewart's a big teddy bear. He says, well, yeah. <laughs> I guess Hell's Angels turn into teddy bears too, right? (laughs) It's a whole other side of Stuart. Wow. That's great. He had his whole thing going, you know. It was a, and I remember when we were shooting um, dolls, he was so determined. That was a tough shoot. And um, towards the end, he just, he just wouldn't stop shooting. He just didn't, the, the, the schedule was too tight. This was a movie that Charlie Band was paying for. And so you kind of had to go with what they said. And Charlie was just like, no, 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 can't, can't, can't. And so we had to stop shooting. 
And Stewart just wouldn't shut, stop. And no, Stewart was a real, you know, the crew always liked him. You know, mm -hmm. They were right with him. And Mac was shooting, and we had the same guys for those three movies. And and then we had a, the rest of the crew was Italian. This was in Rome. And we were shooting this inserts of the dolls, and the the line producer, the Italian line producer, just decided, well, screw them. I'm just going to call the I'm going to tell the um, the props house they can come and get their props. Wow! <laughs> and so they showed up with their truck, and they were all wearing these. You know, in Europe, they wear these little white smocks that they workers wear these white jackets you know mm -hmm. and so they all kind of start coming in to the stay and we were working in a big sound stage and they come in and start carrying out the furniture because in dolls it was all this antique type furniture they start carrying the furniture and Stuart is shooting we're in a, a room the bedroom or something and he's shooting a doll on the on the chair Okay, right there. And then he says, okay, put it over here. And they're moving there. And the guy and the and the props house guys come and take the sofa away before they can put the doll down. Oh, God. That's what's going on. And Stuart won't stop. And he just goes, okay, over there. And, whoop, and they shoot it over there. And I thought, boy, that is Stuart Gordon. Wow. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> Well, that's a that's a perfect place to end. But I did have one question. You you met you you said that the crew was always very much with Stewart, and I feel like a lot of directors, in a lot of cases, it's difficult to really earn that loyalty of your crew. How do you think Stewart did that? What was it about him that made crews so loyal to him? I think the crew wants to believe in the director. They want it. They want to. Th they want to think that they're on on something good. And I think you have to have the key, their leader. See, the crew is made up, you know, like the grips have a key grip. The gaffers have a have a key gaffer, you know, have the, the head gaffer. The DP runs all of them, right? He's got his camera crew. And then the gaffer talks to the DP about what to do. He tells his guy, he tells the key grip, he tells his guys. So that's kind of the shooting crew. And then, and that's the camera, the lights and all that. Then the, the um, art department isn't as, you know, the, you'll have your, they call them a production designer now, but back then they were called an art director and they, would get all the, they'd find out what you wanted for costuming, for props, for what everything should look like, um, makeup. So all these, the people who directly deal with the director, um, he has to win them over. And they, he has to, they have to feel like he knows what he's doing. And the worst thing that can happen is for the crew to, think the director doesn't know what he's doing or that it's okay for a director to be kind of a tyrant because people will put up with it. If they think the guy knows what he's doing, if they think it's going to be good stuff, 
you'll put up with it. You'll work for somebody who, and you'll, you'll put up with abuse if you think it's worth it, you know. Where it gets into trouble is if you have a director who doesn't communicate well, who comes off as maybe being not clear about what he wants, not knowing what he wants. I'm going to say he could be a woman. Um, it can be that the producer is not respected. That'll always screw things up, right? If the crew is being abused in some way. Um, but sometimes, you know, you just get the people. And one thing that people that Stewart does and say someone like Clint Eastwood does is that they tend to want to use the same people all the time. So, for example, Stewart, once he worked with Mac Alberg, he wanted Mac to do all his movies. And Mac was working with, I think it was William Boyd. Well, he, as his focus point, he wanted him to be his first assistant camera. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They try to keep their crew that they, they want their gaffer. They want somebody they already know how to work with. They want to have their the director or producer wants to have that art director that they've worked with before. And even the actors, the Stuart came from theater. So in theater, it's a troupe. Right. It's a group of people. They're almost like a family. And so that family is, um, is in, in theater, as I understand it, traditionally, a theater would put on different plays. And they'd say, okay, you play this, you play that. But it's the same actors. It's the same costumer. It's the same stage manager. And it's a troupe that does that. That's something I understand that Clint Eastwood does. He always has the same DP. He knows when he goes out there, he doesn't have to argue with anybody about anything. I'm not like that. I've always liked to work with different people because I always feel like I don't come from theater. And I always think, man, if it's all left up to me, I don't have that many ideas. You know? Yeah. Most, most people only have one idea. If you've got two, you're pretty damn special. You know, if you three, maybe you got it, you're a genius. So, you know, all, you'll end up doing the same thing all the time. But if you get, I always think, hey, and plus I always like collaborating. Hey, I want to try, see what this DP, this composer, these actors. I mean, of course you like the people you like, but not, but it's always kind of interesting to see what will happen. And I think with Stewart, he was able to take what he, you know, his ability to connect. He ran a theater and people all were with him. And it's not like people don't have some horror stories about Stuart Gordon. It's just their war stories when it all works. When you win the war, it's war stories. Yeah. It's the war, you don't even want to hear about it. You know? <laughs> and I think Stuart's, the work was so good that you kind of go, yeah, I'm on board. You quit resisting. You go, yeah, I want to do this. Where it gets tricky is when you do bigger bigger movies then and you start having people involved, actors involved, like with Reanimator dolls from beyond. There was no actor in those movies that carried any weight within the deal, right? 
But when Stuart went to do Space Truckers, all of a sudden he's dealing with real personalities mm. that are pushing back. You know, I think it's kind of like when when um, when um, what's his name did um, Dune. Mm. Um, what's his, the David Lynch? David Lynch when he did Dune, he took the whole crew out and and he showed them um, Eraserhead. <laughs> so they could see his work. Now all of a sudden people are going, what is going on here? You know? <laughs> oh, and it's a, and I think dude, I mean, I think a lot of the later star Wars movies just completely, I would say borrow from dude. Mm. I mean, there's incredible stuff there, but it didn't quite work. In total, there was brilliant stuff. And I think part of that was because all of a sudden you're in this huge story. And how do you do a war scene when you're David Lynch? It's a whole, you know, when you do those huge scenes, there's second unit directors. There's, you know, there's certain directors who know how to manage. It's like being a general for war. Whereas a genre movie director, the real the great ones, I think, they're more like second lieutenants. Yeah. They've got a platoon. They know every one of the one of the soldiers, and they all have personal loyalty to them. But when you start getting into bigger projects, that starts breaking down, and it becomes then the politics will get bad. But I think you have to first start with with kind of communicating a clear vision and communicating a competence of it and the crew the crew wants to wants to go on the trip they want to go on the voyage but you can't make them think that you're you're don't know what you're doing at all yeah. bring it down fast but Stuart was pretty much uh you know the crews always really loved him great well brian such a pleasure thank you so much thank you Larry Fessenden is an American director, producer, writer, and actor. Larry's career highlights include Habit, Wendigo, The Last Winter, and 2019's Depraved. I always love speaking to Larry. As far as indie filmmakers go, Larry is so much the real deal, and I like to call him the East Coast Corman because he's not only a prolific director, but he's mentored and groomed multiple other great directors like Ty West, Jen Wexler, and Jim Mickle. Larry and Stewart never actually got to work together on a film, which is extremely unfortunate. But for years, they had a number of projects that they were developing. This conversation was mostly about what Stewart inspired in Larry as a filmmaker, as well as some details about those lost projects that they were working on that never came to see the light of day. There's lots of great wisdom here. Please enjoy this reflection on Stuart Gordon with the great Larry Fessenden. Let's, um, I mean, obviously we're, we're here to talk about Stewart. I feel like it might be cool to start with what was the fir- your first viewing of Reanimator like? Uh, well, actually, remember, I saw it in a theater. Um, and the funny thing is I remember From Beyond as well, which I saw on 42nd Street or something really scuzzy. Ooh, that's how to see uh, From Beyond. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but uh, honestly, Reanimator... I preferred, and I mean, that was just such an amazing introduction. What I loved was the sense of 
really theatrical staging. You really sensed in his filmmaking that he did come from his theatrical background because a lot of the, you know, the talking head in the tray, all of that stuff felt uh, just really fresh. It didn't feel forced. I mean, of course, 80s had pretty cool effects, even, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. Everything was a little more tactile. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think Stewart had a sort of a, a, a grace with it and a plum. Then, of course, there was Barbara Crampton, who was very hot. And that seemed like also a sort of a fun sense of humor. Everything about that movie was very captivating. And it's it's funny how you can make a classic and then that becomes why, at least why I said I'm a Stuart Gordon fan. You know, I yeah. sensed his, his energy and his um, point of view in that one movie. Mm-hmm. And then I kept up with him, but not religiously over the years. You know what movie I really liked was a later film of his called Stuck. I that's the one I haven't seen. I really recommend it. Uh, it's it's also like a chamber piece. It's first of all, it's a very singular situation. You never leave the car because the guy is stuck in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's profound and it's a real moral, um, you know, morality based kind of dilemma that the character is in. Uh, so I found that also to, it could have been a one act play, you know, right. like Stuart, uh, comes back to that, his origins mm-hmm. in way. and you can feel it in the movies. And I just have a great fondness for that, uh, world. And of course he used the same actors and then, uh, so you had a sense of an ensemble and a community. That's something that he put out and that's yeah. before I met him. And once I met him, I really had a sense of exactly that, that he was very personable. And we tried to work together. He really liked what Glass Eye Picks was doing, making independent movies. And he thought somehow that we could um, help him. Mm-hmm. The funny thing was that I think even at his level, that he, his sense of what a low budget was a little bit higher than even what we were doing as scrappy up and comers, you know, mm-hmm. he had been on the block. So we expected a million or something in that range because that's what he was used to. He was very professional. Um, so we tried to launch one or two, well, two projects and they were, you know, when you get into it with a filmmaker like Stuart Gordon, you're starting to picture it and you're talking about, even if you're dealing with the very beginning stages and you're basically talking about when you find the money, <laughs> you know the, uh, there's always going to be conversations about won't this be cool. And it was a really a strange movie about uh, uh, shadows that move across the city and, and, and preachers hiding in the shadows and mm. you have to pass um, this affliction from one person to the other i mean it's it's yeah i'm not totally clear in my mind i suppose i could look through the old emails but um it was very evocative and i couldn't wait to do this with Stuart. it just seemed so exciting it was going to be in new york you were going to film in new york yeah and that was part of it he was excited to come to the city and sort of join our posse he was really supportive and um in other words it was reciprocal i was excited to hear from him and work with him and he really felt that he could get some juice from our camp and our people. Um, in a weird way, what ended up happening is that the closest we came to working together, which was very dear, was uh, 
doing a tale from beyond the pale which is our our radio plays so he brought the band together he had uh, barbara crampton he had his composer and his writer um, and they did an adaptation of hp uh, lovecraft's the hound and they recorded in la my partner glenn mcquaid uh my partner in the uh, radio plays was there um, working with Stuart, and then uh, i got to play the hound which he, was <laughs> he was delighted to uh you know we just had a fun time working on that together and he really rode glenn very hard he was very particular yeah and again, it felt like he came from a little bit of a Whatever world he built, whatever community he built, he was in charge. He was a, a man of stature. Yeah. No, you know, he's not Ridley Scott or even Romero, but although he had a similar humility as Romero, you know, this is what I say is the horror icons are, we're all sort of outsiders. Mm -hmm. We all struggled. We do struggle. And, um, I mean, that's why Stuart King, the glass I picks. That's when you know you're desperate. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that from many people who've worked with him, that he's very commanding, sometimes demanding, but he's also very, very humble at the same time. Yeah. And those seem like paradoxical qualities, but it seems like he was able to strike that fine balance, which feels rare in a director. Yeah, I mean, as I say, he reminded me of Romero, maybe generationally, um, maybe that they felt like outsiders uh, in their craft. You know, Hollywood has disdain for horror. It's, it's somewhat changing now, but believe me, in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, uh, you were an outsider if you were making horror. Only Wes Craven was able to sort of break through, but nobody took him seriously. You know, he spent years trying to make a non-horror film, the famous musical with Meryl Streep. Right. About violins or whatever, and and... No one would let him out of his cage. You know, we're all in a cage once you get into the horror genre. It's not a bad cage, as far as I'm concerned. I like the cage. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there you have it. Um, so, Stuart, I don't actually recall Stuart ever wanting to get out of that cage. He no. seemed always to have a very devilish, uh, mischievous sense of humor. And, um, you know, he did a play at the end of his years. Mm -hmm. uh, the cannibal, the German cannibal who ate his boyfriend's privates and, and, and onwards. And I just think it's pretty cool. I mean, people were apparently like gasping and vomiting in the theater. So I think he never Stuart, lost it. Yeah, he never lost it. Oh, no. He was very mischievous. Uh, so that was uh, my direct experience was doing the, uh, the, the radio play with him and then you know, we, we finally met after many years on, on the telephone. Uh, we met at the Stanley Film Festival. It was very nice to finally uh, really hang out with him for a bit. But just uh, a real influence in terms of these, these pillars of the horror community that you really, the secret I always say of the horror communities were very... Um, it's it's really a, a tight group. We share a common appreciation for the macabre, and that makes us feel like outsiders. And therefore, we you know stick together. I mean, let's say that's how it always has been. I don't know what the current climate will bring, but that's sort of 
this this generation, Stewart's generation, really, uh, I think, took solace in, in the fans, how much they cared about him and how uh, iconic you know, his, his big features were. Yeah. Yeah, he seemed like he was able to kind of nurture a community of outsiders and let a lot of younger horror filmmakers know that it's okay to be an outsider and there's a place for you in the horror community, which is wonderful. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I always say it's a very nurturing uh, community. It has been for decades in any case because we're all sort of outside looking in at the, the Hollywood system and we're all disparaged. Um, and yet, you know, we may consistently... You know, R always makes money in some some faction or some version of making money, and uh, yeah. Uh, so it's 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 a fine place to to reside. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Were there any big lessons you took from Stewart as a director? Because you're obviously a, a pretty accomplished director. Was there anything that he taught you as a director? As I say, the thing I liked about Stewart is the way he staged. Um, I mean, just speaking of. The animator. There was a sense of humor, but it wasn't campy in the way that sometimes can be a little self-conscious and pandering. Right. Uh, it was more uh, almost a satire, which is a much subtler um, flavor. And uh, and yet, as I say, there was something in his staging which was just very matter of fact and. Um, also didn't fetishize the effect. It just presented it. I don't know. I, as I say, I really think it had a lot to do with a theater background. Mm -hmm. where your main agenda is to figure out the trick so that you can pull it off. And then he would film it. Uh, so there was a sort of an effortlessness. And, you know, there are many other types of filmmakers who would do that stuff differently. Like I say, the, uh, the, the Freddy Krueger movies, you know, you really can feel the, the effort there to create some of it. Yeah. It's also very wonderful uh, practical effects, but it's sort of like, all right, here we go. Mm -hmm. There's something about Stuart. It was, uh, so it's just to say that that would be the flavor. I mean, if you're going to learn from every director, it's fun to see uh, what that perspective they bring to it. And, and also it speaks to something I believe, which is, you could feel his personality on screen, you mm -hmm. know, uh, his warmth, his mischievousness, um, his inventiveness and this sense of, well, just fucking do it. Yeah. Uh, well, he was also, as I say, he enjoyed, uh, he was, uh, also very naughty. I mean, his, uh, he used Barbara and the beautiful thing is that Barbara is a woman who he enjoyed playing that role for him, you know, in subsequent movies and even in um, the radio play there's a sex scene that they added Stuart obviously said well we have to have a sex scene and it was like randomly in a H.P. Lovecraft movie she's like a dominatrix it's oh a, naturally really, really something that Stuart just had this idea in the middle of the night um, so I just found all that very charming yeah 
Yeah, a common theme of these conversations when people are talking about Stewart is how much his theater background enabled him as a director, you know, and sleight of hand tricks like the ones used on Reanimator, and also how he took things so seriously. I mean, Reanimator, everybody played it straight, which is why it makes that movie so magical. You, it has bonkers concepts, but it's so grounded with actors that are in the moment and they're taking it completely seriously. And he rehearsed the hell out of that thing. Also, oh, well, yeah. that's also theater and. Maybe that's that helps me sort of know that what I'm trying to express is that you feel you're watching something that's crafted. Yeah, it's not like they just threw it together the old cliche. Oh, it was an indie film, you know? They just did it real quick. You feel like this is completely uh, someone is in control of uh, what's going down. Here. Yeah, that really um, and the effects. It was all very considered, mm-hmm. and that uh, extremely uh, appealing and. And it just instantly stood out, and you were always curious, what was he going to do next? Yeah. I mean, I know he did dolls, and he did a bunch of other um, really uh, individual, I mean, very specifically, um, personality. Personality, every way you turn. <laughs> His picture. <laughs> that was definitely him, yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Um, is there anything we didn't touch on regarding Stuart that uh, that you'd, you, you'd want to mention? Any other? Well, I've said this about Stuart, but in our calls, building this potential of movies, I really had um, a sense of him wanting to do the work and being a little bit frustrated that it wasn't always easy to raise the money or whatever his... Uh, whatever the blocks were that were keeping him from just getting to work. So I think once again, you have um, a filmmaker who would probably have rather made more films and, uh, but uh, he soldiered on and he was always looking for solutions. I suspect that's why he ended up doing some theater at the end as well, um, because he knew that he could count on a smaller budgeted production and he just wanted to do the creative work. And yeah. that's why that's why we even began talking and it was really uh, a fun uh, it was fun to see him willing to explore and, and find solutions though I'll work with this cool company they, they seem to be uh, getting things done also another thing he did that I thought was very sweet is in the press he's, he highlighted my um, piece in uh, ABC's of death 2 which oh. you know, 26 filmmakers and he just randomly said that mine was one of the best. And, you know, I didn't, it was not, he didn't call me and say it wasn't, he wasn't gaining anything by going out on the limb for me. So I like his sensibility that he sort of saw mine as, uh, so I, I guess what I'm getting at is I felt like we had some simpatico, which is why we enjoyed scheming together yeah well i wish i could have seen what you guys would have come up with oh me too man i still think about that one movie and then we even tried a whole second movie but i that one i don't (laughs) um anyway uh but that's you know i love guillermo del toro his quote is the natural story of a film is it's not getting made i mean it's a very awkward statement but when you realize the weight of it it is so heartbreaking yeah so i could we could do podcasts of movies that I haven't made. It would be very 
long podcast. <laughs> yeah, there is a podcast called The Greatest Movies Never Made, and it's all about like these movies that almost happened. No doubt. And there's a, yeah, there's a whole project. And it's funny because I did an interview for Depraved for that. Oh, a separate project, but in that same vein of, of horror movies that were never made. For example, Romero famously wanted to make a mummy movie. Right. Which, I mean, in a way, we're all blessed he didn't get to it. <laughs> <laughs> Clive Barker and Mick Garris were going to do one, too. And Steve Johnson was doing the effects. What is with the mummy? I don't, I don't know. know. I've never had an appeal. But, um, yeah, so I did an interview for Depraved. And then I beg your pardon, I said in the middle of the interview, excuse me, the difference is I'm actually going to make this. So, uh, <laughs> nevertheless, yeah, Stuart probably had a lot of tricks up his sleeves that he never got to and it's one of the tragedies of and one of the realities of filmmaking yeah no that is definitely a tragedy well larry thank you for taking some time to to reflect on Stuart. it's it's, it's oh, really yeah. been wonderful to hear so thank you thanks man very good Graham Skipper is an American actor, director, and writer. He's directed multiple horror movies, including Space Clown and Sequence Break, which is now streaming on Shudder. He also reprised the role of Dr. Herbert West in Reanimator the Musical and starred in multiple Joe Bigos movies, including Almost Human and The Mind's Eye. Graham worked really closely with Stewart on Reanimator the Musical and was lucky enough to have developed a very close relationship with him. There are multiple wonderful lessons that Graham learned from Stewart, and he was great enough to share them with me. So please enjoy this conversation about Stuart Gordon with Graham Skipper. Can you talk about your working relationship with Stuart for those who might not be familiar? Yeah. So, um, back in, I want to say 2010, uh, I, uh, had the great fortune of being cast, uh, in as Herbert West in reanimator the musical. Um, I had, uh, uh, gotten invited to audition through uh, our mutual friend, George Wint, um, who I knew uh, from my uh, New York comedy days. That is Norm and from the, Cheers, right? That was Norm from Cheers, yes. Um, and George had become a friend of mine and a, and a sometimes collaborator. And, and he basically called me one day and he said, hey, have you ever heard of, of the movie Reanimator? And I, you know, being a lifelong horror fan, I said, yes, of course. And he said, do you know the director, Stuart Gordon? And I said, yes, of course. And he said, well, he's going to call you in about 15 minutes. And I said, holy shit. <laughs> um, you know, and I spoke to Stuart and basically Stuart was like, yeah, we'd love to have you, you know, can you come out to LA and can you, um, you know, come and, and uh, audition for the show? And so I did and, and I read for it and, you know, and, and I, and I got it. Um, and it was just such an incredible experience from, from day one, you know, Stuart, you know, although he's, certainly, you know, best known for being, uh, uh, you know, a legendary horror director. Um, you know, Stuart, uh, was also a, uh, uh, a legendary theater director, right. um, the organic theater company in Chicago. Um, and so, you know, although I was familiar with Stuart's work as a filmmaker, um, you know, w- walking into the rehearsal room with him and getting to, um, you know, getting to see that part of his process as, as my first introduction to him as a person, um, just was really special, um, you know, and, and, and yeah, we, we did reanimate the musical off and on for five years. Um, and we toured all over the world together. Uh, Stuart was always there. Um, Stuart, uh, you know, was, was very hands-on. I mean, Stuart 
would would lead us in a warm up before every show and before every rehearsal. Um, Stuart uh, Stuart ran the light board for much of the run of the show. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I mean, he you know it was amazing. Like you think of this legendary director, and 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 people would come up to me and say, "Oh, where's Stuart?" And I'd say, "Oh, he was back there." They're like, "Wait, the guy running the lights?" Like, yeah, him. <laughs> you know, he um he he was extremely hands on, and he really cared about what he was doing, and he you know always had this sort of um, I don't know if you call it a mantra, but this this you know. Uh, uh, sort of perspective that you can always make a show better. Mm. Um, and, and so he always really worked toward that, um, you know, and, and, and of course throughout that process, um, you know, he, he became a good close friend. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, af- after the show ended, we remained in touch and would have, would have lunch, you know, every month or so and catch up. And, you know, he remained, uh, always very, um, excited to hear about what was going on in my life and uh interested in all of that and and uh you know like when i was making my film sequence break um stuart uh, i invited stuart to come over and and watch a, a rough cut of the film and give me his notes you know and so stuart came over and and sat on my couch and watched my movie uh, and gave me some incredible notes that were very uh worthwhile and and um and uh you know totally helped to make the film better so i've I've just been very, very grateful that, you know, I, I had such a relationship with him and, and got to work with him for so long and learn from him. Um, you know, and I, I miss him very much. I mean, we had lunch probably a month before he passed. Oh, wow. Um, you know, and, and we went to this really great sushi place and just had a really lovely conversation. Um, he seems like he was a real mentor to a lot of young people in the horror community who were up and coming. And he, he seemed like a real nurturer in that regard. He absolutely was. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, like I, I met Joe Begas, uh, working for Stuart, you know, Joe was, was, uh, uh, Stuart's personal assistant for many years. And then he was the stage manager for reanimated the musical. So that's how Joe and I met. Oh, um, all right. and, and, uh, but, but it's the same thing with, you know, Stuart always took a chance on talent um, that that wasn't yet proven, um, but he could see something in people, mm. uh, and he wasn't afraid to like he wasn't afraid to give the lead role of of you know this iconic character in a musical to essentially a total unknown, you know like that's you know he gave me a shot and it's what gave me my career and as I look through his history with all of his films and, and everything he did. I mean, that's a pattern uh, and, and it's a real um, special quality, you know, in a, in, in a person to, you know, to, to be able to, to be willing to take chances like that. Um, and it seems like he, he always was. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think he had seemed to have such a sweet side to him uh, and just really care about people in a big way and care about the horror community. And I think it's mentorship speaks volumes when you hear about people who really dedicate a lot of time and effort and energy to, to nurture other people in their industry. I think that that's enormous. Were there any big lessons that you learned from him as a director? You know, I mean, I, I think the, the the two biggest things I would say are that um, one uh, is that character must come first, that um, it's all about the characters and it's all about, you know, making sure that people believe uh, in what's happening to those characters in order for the rest of the movie to fall into place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, Reanimator only works as a movie because all of the actors are playing it so earnestly. Right. You know, if you played that movie as a slapstick comedy, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, and, and Stewart knew that. And, and that's something that you'll see in every single one of his films is that, you know, the, the characters are all uh, very true and feel very real and very grounded. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and while, yes, we were doing Reanimated the Musical, and yes, a part of that was that we were big and that it was, it had like sort of a Grand Guignol spectacle kind of vibe to it. And it was, um, you know, purposefully, there, there are some goofy things in it that are, that are funny because of the the for the format of the of the thing that we're doing. Um, it was never it was never silly for silly's sake. It mm-hmm. always was rooted in in um, rooted in the emotion of the moment and and in the type of thing that we were making. Right. Um, and, and that was always you know just the thing with him was everything everything stemmed from character. Um, and and in addition to that, you know. Stuart, uh, he had a motto, uh, which was more is more. Um, and, and, you know, I think what that means is that, you know, always go bigger, always make the big, bolder choice, you know, always go, go as far as you can, uh, you know, more blood, more screaming, um, and more energy, more everything, um, you know, and, and he would have this amazing knack to somehow get you to give him more of something and then pinpoint the little things where, you know, okay, now pull back a little bit on that glance, hmm. you know, or, or, you know, okay, in this little moment, be just a touch more subtle. And then he could really craft it, but he was never afraid to go big and he was never afraid to, to do something totally insane. You know, it was like, like, I remember we had a, a gag at the beginning of the musical where, where, you know, we would sing, we, we had a splash zone in the first few rows of the audience. <laughs> Naturally. And, and, uh, you know, and blood would spray on them and whatever. And, and we had this bit where the, we'd be singing this opening song that the cast would hand me a bucket and the bucket had blood in it. And, and I remember at the beginning, you know, he had me like, we, we, we were like trying to splash the blood on like a lot of the front row and it was sort of diluting the power of it. And he said, well, first we need to put more blood in there. And second, why don't you just dump it all on one person? <laughs> and, and we were like, is that, God, is that too much? And he was like, no, of course not. It's never too much. You're holding a bucket of blood in your hand. Like, empty the whole thing onto somebody. Show and they signed up. You know? And and so that's what we did, and it was totally the right choice. Um, you know, but but I think, you know, like I carried that into sequence break where, you know, we we just said, you know, look, we're making this thing on a low budget, and we want this film to be as impactful and as interesting as possible. So in every single department, um, make the bolder choice, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is, make the bolder choice. Uh, Cause I believe that that's what Stuart would have done. And, and I know that that's what Stuart would have done. I, I will say to he, I did ask him for advice the day before we started shooting. I called him and I said, what advice would you give me? And he said, well, I'll give you the same advice that Roger Corman gave first time filmmakers, which is wear comfortable shoes and sit down often. <laughs> and I'll tell you, that's great advice. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I got to return to the idea of always, always go bigger and go bolder. Because I mean, what that indicates is if you if you push things further, you might not use that in the final, in the actual final film, whatever you get out of it. But you'll force the actors or you'll force the scene 
to reveal certain things that you can then either reel in or you'll it'll reveal new material that otherwise wouldn't have been there, you know, had you played it small. So I think, I mean, there's so many little nuances about him as a director. And when it comes to horror directing, there's the level of uh, quality that he seemed to really focus on getting out of his actors was very, it seems to really distinguish him. And I would hear, hear about the the really comprehensive rehearsals that he would go through mm-hmm. um, yep. with all of his actors. I mean, clearly a lot of this stems from his theater background, but he brought such a level of realism and focused on just fi- fine performances from his actors in a genre that's not always, you know, necessarily known for their performances. Um, but I think you're right. I think that's part of the magic of Reanimator: the fact that the entire cast played it straight. And it just it makes that movie sing versus if it was something a little more campy, you know, but yeah, uh, I, yeah. Agree. I, I agree. And, you know, just to speak to that, I think that, you know, that's the thing that stands out about all of his films is that, you know, his movies go to some pretty wacky places, um, but somehow you buy them every mm-hmm. single one. You totally buy it. And it's because the performances are also grounded, you know, and, and I remember, you know, he would say something to us when we were rehearsing. And of course, we were doing theater, but but he would say something to us that was, you know, like, you know, if one of somebody would grumble about like taking time to warm up before a show or something, you know, he'd say, well, don't you want to do this? Don't you want the show to be as good as possible? Uh-huh. And I'd say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. You know, and, and, and same, same goes with like, you know, like typically in a, in a, a stage show, once the show opens, it's more or less frozen. Uh, and, and the director no longer gives you notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's just kind of like that's typical practice. Um, and Stuart would give us, you know, a note before every show. He, he, would, he would come up and he would give us a little something. And I remember, you know, we'd been doing the show off and on for five years. And it was our very final performance um, in, in Las Vegas. Uh, and what would turn out to be the very final performance we'd ever do at the show. And he came up to me and he said, Hey Graham, I have a note for you. I want, I want you to try something a little different. And he gave me like this little adjustment in one of my songs. I said, Stuart, it is the last show. <laughs> it's the very last show. You Hardcore. know, what are you talking about? And, and he said, well, yeah, it's the last time you get to try this. <laughs> I love, and, I love the logic there. Yeah. It just, it yeah, speaks to quality and, and having fun. Yeah. Yeah. And having fun. Like, that's the thing. He always, he found the joy in, in performing or, or the, the joy in creating uh theater and, and the joy in, in creating this work. Um, and he took great pride in it. I mean, there was a great, I remember a story we were, um, uh, uh, we, we, for a time were doing these two show days and we'd perform a show at like 8 PM and then we'd have like a two hour break and then we'd perform a show at midnight. It was something like that. And and one night, um, you know, we finished the first show and Stuart had brought in a, 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 a TV on like one of those things like you might see in a in a, a science classroom, like a, an old school TV sitting on top of a VCR. Mm-hmm. He wheeled it in and he said, hey, uh, you know, and, and he holds up his VHS of dolls, his personal VHS. And he says, you know, like this, I don't think that this movie has ever really gotten its full due. And I've always really liked it. And so I thought, I don't know, do you guys want to watch it with me during the break? <laughs> On a VHS. On a, you know, and so awesome. we said, yeah, you know, so we sat and we watched and he gave us a live commentary to dolls as it was happening. Oh, that's you know, so he cool. wanted to share this cool thing that he'd made. Yeah. Um, and he did that often. I mean, he, sh- he shared so many films with me throughout the years of like, you know, just different movies he thought that I'd like. Oh, know? yeah. Anything come to mind? 
Um, being there. Okay. Uh, Peter Sellers. First one to pop, yeah, Peter Sellers being there. Um, oh gosh, there was a movie. <sighs> what is the name of it? There's a film that takes place. Uh, it's an old film. It's black and white, and it takes place in a um in a in a in a cemetery, and it's like the cemetery has its own like little insulated world. Hmm. It's not Plan Nine from Outer Space. No, 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 no. It's um. I'd have to look. I can't. It's, it's escaping me right now. But I'm um, like, there's another film called um, that was a more recent one from from I want to say Brazil called Revolucion Toxica Ooh. Um, that he'd seen at some, you know, South American film festival. And he just loved it. And it's like this totally bonkers zombie musical um, <laughs> in Portuguese. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sign me up. So, yeah. And, and um, you know, but it, it just he had such eclectic tastes and. He, he loved all, and he just loved sharing cool stuff with people. You know, I remember, I remember, you know, like we would talk about our favorite movies and like he would, you know, he said, oh, one of the scariest movies of all time is Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. What? You know? Well, yeah. And I was like, that's so great. That's so cool. You know? Yeah. Um, I never would have, yeah, I yeah, wouldn't have guessed that one, but I can see it now that I think back. Yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, he, he was such a, he was such a supportive guy in the arts, you know, and like he, he would go to so many events here in in, uh, you know, here in LA and, 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 you know, and elsewhere, like he would, if he was at a film festival, he'd be seeing movies, mm-hmm. you know, he would, he would go and see plays, you know, and, and, uh, and that's just something that doesn't necessarily happen. You know, yeah. with, with a lot of, he with just a lot loved of the, loved the horror world, loved the community, was interested in the movies. That's yeah. yeah. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. You know, yeah. he just genuinely had a passion for, for the horror community. Yeah. That's great. Any other fun or endearing or revealing Stuart stories? Gosh, I mean, you know, I, I, my, my memories of Stuart are just that, you know, he, he was so, he was so generous with his time and his thoughts and and his his tutelage mm. um you know and and he 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 was also very generous in terms of allowing it to be a collaborative process you know like we were always encouraged i mean from the moment that i met him you know from day one of rehearsal you know i'm coming in nervous as hell you know just trying to please him and he was asking me my opinion you know what do you think of this you know how do you feel about this move whatever and, and, and he wouldn't hesitate to say that he disagreed with something. If I, you know, mm-hmm. if I, I said like, you know, if I said, Oh, what about this? He would say, mm, no, I don't think so. You know, but he was, you know, he just, he knew what he wanted, Yeah. but he was open. He was open to changing it if somebody could convince him. Um, and that's just a very special quality in a director. Um, yeah. he, he, he genuinely always just wanted it to be as good as possible. And, and that's, evidenced by the fact that the man you know ran the light board you know yeah. like he wanted each of those moments to be perfect and he knew that every night in the theater is different and he wanted to be you know crafting this thing with us mm-hmm. um you know and, and and i can tell you honestly you know i've never been a part of a show before in my life that created the the family um that reanimator did yeah you know i'm still best friends with everyone that did the show um and, and it was a truly special, you know, sort of mo- moment in time. And, and, 
And as I've talked to other people that have worked with Stuart and other people that knew him, it's clear that that was a pattern in his life of creating a real family um, around, you know, around the art and around, around all these projects, Um, you know, and that, and that goes straight back to him. Yeah. Um, He, uh, he was a really, really special man. And, and, you know, I've, I've been revisiting, like I know a lot of people have all of his, all of his films and, and, you know, just thinking to myself every time, like, wow, you know, it's so rare to see a director who didn't have a single dud in their entire filmography. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have a favorite? Um, my favorite Stuart Gordon movie, if I, if I discount reanimator, which I have a very close affection for, obviously, um, gosh, I mean, I love so much from beyond, um, I, I really love, there's a Disney film he did called the wonderful ice cream suit. Oh, that's right. Um, Never. That's the one I haven't seen. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Um, and, uh, I actually, he gave me a, a DVD of it. He, one of the first times I met him at his office, you know, he was like, I can't remember what it was. We were talking about his films and he was like, Oh, well, have you seen the wonderful ice cream suit? And I said, I've never even heard of it. And he said, Oh, well, I have a couple of these DVDs left. He said, they don't, they're out of print. So don't lose it. But here, have this. Wow. Um, how did you know, that movie and, even and come about? I, I was always curious. That that movie, how that yeah. movie come about? You know, I, I I'm not exactly sure, but as I I mean I I all that I know about it is that you know it's based on a Ray Bradbury short story. Okay. And my understanding is that Stuart and Ray Bradbury himself had developed that story into a play back oh. in back in Chicago. Oh, that's interesting. And, and so I think that Stuart had for a while been trying to get it into it made into a movie and and then at some point i'm not exactly sure um where i read this or who i heard this from but that that um he that that somehow you know bradbury himself you know got back involved and together they were able to convince disney to come in and and make the film Mm -hmm. um and it's a really wonderful movie it's i'll tell you that this is actually a fun story so my sister um was going to uh it was like the dallas comic con i think and uh, Edward James Olmos was going to be there. And of course, my sister and I are both big uh, Battlestar Galactica fans. And so she was going to go meet Edward James Olmos. Well, Edward James Olmos stars in The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. Right. And I said, well, you've got to tell him about your connection to Stuart. Because, uh, of course, my sister had met Stuart many times and, and all that. And so she waits in line. She gets up to him and she tells him uh, that, that, you know, she knew Stuart Gordon. And he said, can I tell you something? The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit was my favorite movie I ever worked on. Wow. And isn't that something? Yeah. You know? And it's probably um, all because of him. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it it all it all trickles down, you know, from the director and from you know the vibe that they that they have on set and and uh and the and the work ethic, you know, and like Stuart. I mean, I mean it was, you know, like when we would, you know, like strike the show like Stuart was the first one there with the drill in his hand, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and when we did the show in Edinburgh, we had to set up the set and break it down every night before and after. And Stuart was right there with us, you know, in his suit, like breaking it down and putting it up. These and, kind of things just speak volumes about who a person is between that and him operating the light board. I mean, he's Stuart Gordon. He doesn't have to be doing these things, but of course, yeah. of course he would be there just to have the kind of leader that would be willing to get their hands dirty and to 
to lead the charge, you know, on these things that a director normally wouldn't be doing. It just inspires everybody else, you know, on the in the cast and the crew to work that much harder and and to to devote that much more energy to make this already special thing that much more special. And I think that that's why everything that Stuart ever created um, and and the relationships that he built uh, were also strong uh, is because he he really led by example. Yeah. Well, that's huge. Well, that's a great way to end this. Grant, thank you so much for doing this. Any um, any parting words about Stuart? Um, I I miss Stuart very much. Uh, I loved him very much. I'm forever thankful to Stuart for giving me a career, um, and I'm forever grateful for the friendship that followed. Um, and all I would say to anybody listening is that you know, every single one of Stewart's films is special and is different and is interesting. And he especially would want you to seek out, you know, some of the lesser known stuff uh, because he was very proud of all of it. Um, but yeah, we all, you know, should raise a glass to Stu and, and uh, you know, be, be grateful that, that what he left behind is, is a body of work. That's uh, not just super entertaining, uh, but, but inspiring, uh, you know, to, to young indie filmmakers and artists that just want to create something bonkers. He proved you can and, yeah. uh, and it'll live forever. I'll drink to that. Thanks, Graham. Nick, thanks so much. I really appreciate you giving me the chance to talk about him. All right, guys. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on the Instagrams at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.